How do these guys manage to get guests on this thing? They don't do it themselves. In fact, legally speaking, they shouldn't even have jobs. This is above the fold and below your expectations. Today, we'd love to welcome our guest, Colin Jeffries, um, the Director of Marketing and Communications at Brightview. And um, we're really going to talk about audience and his approach, his unique approach to, um, to marketing. So, Colin, if you don't mind, why don't you give us a quick intro uh, for, the, uh, for the audience? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. Excited to be here and hopefully share a little bit of wisdom. We'll see. But uh, my background, you know, I've, I've spent about a decade in all things healthcare, hospitality, home improvement, customer segmentation, marketing strategy, branding, et cetera, for a, a variety of organizations. And right now, you know, I'll try not to bore you with lots of minute details, but right now at, at Brightview, I, I really focus on our customer segmentation and delivering appropriate messages to folks who are facing the disease of addiction. And it's it's not the five star riding on horses adventure therapy, you know, living on the beach style of a quote unquote rehab that a lot of people picture based on uh, some advertisements that they may have seen. But this is a lot more, you know, Medicaid focused, um, kind of rural or, or small town Ohio and Kentucky type of focus mm-hmm. uh, on on folks who really want help but aren't sure where to get it or who to get it from. So. Uh, that's that's kind of our target audience. Our messaging is really built around seeing people quickly, treating them like humans uh, and not like they've done something wrong, not like felons or anything of that nature, but actually treating them like people with some respect, with some compassion, with some empathy, uh, with programs that are outpatient. So they're designed around lives versus expecting somebody to buy a plane ticket to fly from, I don't know, Illinois to um, to Nevada or to Florida or to Montana for 30 days and then fly back. So it, it is um, a unique business model, I would say, and definitely a unique customer segment. So already right up, right off the bat, I think I'm going to call it right now that this might be one of my more favorite episodes because um, currently I work at a nonprofit and we, we focus on um, basically the financial toxicity that cancer patients face after they get diagnosed. Um, it's incredible. And yeah, and it's and on top of that, it's honestly an issue not a lot of people know about. So I'm really excited to get into this conversation about, you know, that that audience, but in particular, just healthcare in general and, you know, how it's a, di- a different approach and how you and how you have to kind of speak a, a little differently and engage different people differently. But um, the second reason is because um, because Jeff's audio is kind of kind of flaky right now. He can't talk. I have control right now. Jeff is just there sitting. He's got to listen because his audio is not working all that well. So oh, I'm creeping. I'm still creeping. <laughs> I'm creeping on you. Yeah, but it's but if you can't as often, you're so just, it's even better. Oh, you're just drinking this in, aren't you? I absolutely. Oh. I was all nice in the pre, but nope. Now that we're recording, it's real, man. It's all I'm me. Saving an extra clip for you. I'm saving an <laughs> extra clip for you for the next episode. Don't worry. I can't wait. I can't Nothing wait. getting lost. <laughs> this is just going to be the Francis solo podcast. Yeah, it absolutely is. Absolutely is. Um, and actually, we should mention that you also have a podcast, the Rethink Podcast, and we should also talk about you know, the trials and tribulations of podcasting. But um, we will have there are many, but they're very fun. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's a great time. <laughs> so, um, so let's dig in, Colin. Um, talking about people, the audience who um, are suffering from addiction. And they need help, but they maybe they don't know where to go. So where, how do you how do you start? You know, I mean, these are these are questions that, quite frankly, I'm faced with 
in terms of my the, my audience too. So how how did you start? How did you take those first steps in terms of thinking all this out? No, it's it's a great question and a great place to start. I, I unfortunately think as marketers, and I've seen this all too often, that we sit in our conference rooms or in our boardrooms or in our war rooms, whatever you call it, right? And we think the answer is inside. If I could just be a little bit more creative, if we could brainstorm more, if we could write whatever the the nomenclature is for coming up with ideas, if we ideate, if we iterate, and we can come up with something that will really resonate with our audience. Well, when you're looking at outpatient addiction treatment, specifically, like I said, we're, we're serving the Medicaid population. And oftentimes that comes with things like housing insecurity, um, inability for reliable transportation, um, a, a lot of mental health concerns as well, and sometimes other comorbidities. So we're not talking about the um, I'm, I'm sure you guys work in marketing and you laugh at this, but the like um, wealthy suburban housewife with tons of expendable money and, and you know, two kids and the white picket fence and all that stuff where everybody wants to reach her, right? She's going to buy a new car. She's going to buy groceries. She's buying medicine for her kids. She like everyone wants to reach her. I'm sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum where it's, it's pretty much Brightview and uh, payday lenders that are trying to reach the population that I'm after. And sometimes payday lenders don't even try to reach them. So Francis, to answer your question, where I started is I got out of the conference room and I talked to patients uh, pre-COVID, right? When you could actually do that. But I think that's really important is not getting too far away from your audience. You know, you guys joke that you used to look at numbers and I'm sure that for the podcast, and I'm sure that you find it much more gratifying when an individual sends an email to you and says, thank you for talking about this thing. It really spoke to me. Or thank you for having this guest on they really provided some insight that I was after in my career or, or whatever that is. That individual interaction is so much more valuable than seeing overall numbers go up into the right. And the same exact thing is true for me and my role at Brightview, where when I'm talking to patients, I want to understand what galvanizes them to action. Similarly, what turns them off, right? If I show them an advertisement that says, um, never feel dope sick again or something of that nature. And they look at that and go, Ooh, that's too much like the 50 year old trying to pretend that he's 15. I, I don't want anything to do with that. Or if I'm showing them um, language that says, we treat you like a person, we treat addiction like a disease. How does that resonate with them? What does that mean? Does it conjure up trauma that they've experienced previously? Or does that encourage them to to call? So what we, what I did and my team at Brightview is we brainstormed some different ideas. I think we had a maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20 of them. And we talked to peer recovery supporters who are folks employed by um, treatment providers that have lived experience in addiction and are now at least three years in recovery. And there are some other credentials that they have to get as well to, to treat patients. But we talked to them and said, hey, based on your lived experience, based on your understanding of current patient needs, that sort of thing, does this resonate? Is this off-putting? What do you think? got their feedback, whittled the list down to maybe 10 or a dozen. And then we talked to patients. I did that individually. I sat with patients in our lobby and just chatted to them and talked through some different marketing concepts. And then we had uh, a couple of focus groups that we did to make sure that, you know, people were interacting with each other and there was a little bit more of a, a common thought and different ideas uh, being tossed around with those focus groups. And then we were able to leverage that. And we're marketers. We love to optimize. We love to iterate. We love to experiment and A-B test and multivariate test and all that stuff. So we're definitely doing that to continue to optimize 
what's going on in our messaging. But that's really where we started was who who is the audience? What do they think? And I'll continue to say that it you can never get too far away from your audience. You you have to be in the trenches with them, which is one of the reasons that COVID is just driving me crazy because I want to be back in the lobby talking to patients, hearing about their experiences and serving them better than I did yesterday because I know them better now than I did yesterday. That That's where I was going to go because it's, I mean, it's, it's perfect and it sounds absolutely vital, but we've just spent a year and, and on in terms of having to social distance, can't even go to a hospital in some cases. Um, that must have, um, affected your approach um, to, to, to a degree? Well, it absolutely did. And, and not just in marketing, but in the delivery of services. I mean, we think telehealth is great for folks who have reliable internet access, but what about folks who don't have reliable internet access? And if you are housing insecure, or um, maybe you don't have access to reliable internet because you don't have a place to live, that's a huge challenge. And so how do you deliver a, a continuum of care to that person that includes things like medical checkups, group therapy, individual counseling, maybe peer recovery support, and so on, if that person can't access the internet, and they're either discouraged from or they're not able to due to transportation issues or concerns about catching COVID, that sort of thing, uh, to, to come into the Center for Treatment. So yeah, major challenges with just how care was delivered. Um, kudos to the, the Brightview clinical team, medical team, and technology team for the way that they really expanded our use of telehealth. It was something that we were already using, but obviously not to the extent in, say, February of 2020 that we were in May of 2020. But from just a delivery perspective, too, I'm, I'm sure that you've seen this in the oncology space as well, Francis, but there was this sort of like glut of advertising that came in related to telehealth all of a sudden. And so we saw a little bit of that in some of the keywords that we were bidding on from an AdWords perspective, certainly from an SEO volume perspective. I mean, folks were just loading websites with telehealth, telemedicine, et cetera, type of content. Any any type of virtual care was just being um, exploited in a way that is a, on a national scale. So that that made it a little bit challenging. It was definitely something that we weren't anticipating circa February of 2020, but um, I think my team did a really good job reacting to it and continuing to you know pursue new patients. When you talked about you know reaching people who um, housing insecure or don't even have access you know to the internet, um, that's definitely a subset, at least for me, that I've, I've been obsessive about because you go you fall down this rabbit hole of you know we have these solutions and we want to be helping more people, but in a weird sort of way, the people you desperately want to help are the people that are the hardest to reach because everything I'm doing right now is digitally like infused, you know? Um, and you start thinking about like, what do I have to do (laughs) to get, you know, how do I break free of this digital space and get this message out to honestly, the community that probably needs it the most. Um, and one of the first things, um, because then we started thinking about, or I started thinking about, you know, um, you know, out of home or, is it as simple as an advertisement somewhere or is it, is it a flyer on a billboard? This was all pre-COVID. Well, and also too, one of the things we ran into is you think, ah, oh, radio, that might be a good option because it just carpets everyone. But if you're not spending time in your car driving to a job, do you listen to the radio? And you mentioned billboards. And sure, if you set a billboard up across the street from somebody, they'll see it. But again, if, if you're not driving to your job, 
or driving home, are you seeing a billboard? And folks who are struggling with housing insecurity or unemployment or unreliable transportation or total lack of transportation, radio is probably not a great way way to reach them. And billboards certainly aren't a great way to reach them. That's what we found from trying to reach that population. And I'm I'm sure you had a similar experience. (laughs) We're up against budget. So we didn't even get to have that experience. But we kind of figured out that, yeah, I mean, especially when people weren't driving, that wasn't even an option anymore, which was interesting because billboard rates suddenly went down. Obviously, no one's one's buying billboards and they became even more cost effective. um, But we couldn't justify it. You know, there's no one on the road, like you said there's a message out there. No one's going to see it. Um, and what's, what's the point? I mean, when you think about billboards, it's really almost a CPM buy, right? You want to know how many people are driving past this every day. Yeah. And then if it's a rotating electronic billboard, how many people are seeing my ad versus someone else's ad on the billboard. And when there aren't impressions to sell, you're right. Prices go down because your, your CPM is dropped or your, your CPM might be static, but the number of impressions delivered is dropping. So let's just pretend for a second in the scenario that whatever we're doing outside of a digital space is actually working. It's actually getting out to the community. There was another element that I was up up against too. And it's a little different because I, in your sense, I think you have probably brand recognition or people are aware of Brightview. Um, Family Reach, where I work, which, you know, we're, we're, we're a national sort of organization. We're known some places. We're not known every place. Um, so this element of trust. This idea that if we put a message out there, how do we make sure people know, at least can find a way to trust us? And I, and you can't do that with just one message. Um, so it became this very kind of like community-based sort of strategy that is still getting worked out of how do we build that? How do you build trust in something, especially in a community you're trying to reach and they don't know you? Uh, that's a huge question. I mean, that's, uh, that's the million or billion dollar question, right? Is building trust and scaling trust. And honestly, I think from my experience, the best way that you can do that is with consistency. And I don't mean saying, um, hey, we're, we're open 24-7 and then being open 24-7. No, no, the consistency is much more about experience consistency. At least that's what I've seen. So when folks show up, if one day you have them in and out in 30 minutes and the experience was fantastic, and the next time they show up, it takes them five hours to get in and out and the experience was terrible it's really, really hard to build brand trust there. So what what we try to do at Brightview is really systemize things. So that way, folks are treated um, positively and the same way every single time they come in. They know exactly what to expect. Um, and, and there's a level of consistency there that builds trust. And similarly, I think availability is kind of the second thing. So consistency is number one, availability is number two for building trust. And that means I'm not leaving you on an island by yourself where you don't know how to fix a problem. Insurance is very complicated, now exacerbated by the fact that you might be going through withdrawal. So having somebody that can hold your hand and walk you through how you apply for Medicaid or whatever the situation is, is huge. Social services, especially if folks are involved in the criminal justice system, that can be really challenging to navigate. So knowing that you have a case manager or some sort of um, social work support to help you walk through that. It's huge. And then it, it plays out through, are they answering the phones 24-7? Can I perform certain tasks on the website? Um, can I chat with a live person? All of these touch points that make us, Brightview, more accessible to patients, I think go a really long way in building that brand trust. And then patients repay us, or in non-medical terms, right? customers are repaying brands 
by being brand advocates, by going out and driving additional volume, by saying, hey, you know, the, the buzzword these days is peer-to-peer marketing, but by saying, hey, network, hey, social media following, et cetera, here's this great experience that I had. This brand delivers on my promise. You should check them out. And it's obviously we're using uh, marketing jargon for this, but that happens all the time. I mean, we see it in our reviews and our reputation management. We see it in our patient volume. One of the best ways that we get new patients at Brightview is by providing outstanding experiences for existing patients. And then they bring in friends, family, et cetera. That makes complete sense. And I mean, even if we boil this down to, you know, in terms of any business or any operation, that that holds true. You know, that experience, consistent and positive, um, has a ripple effect. Um, and I, 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 and but definitely in the healthcare industry, I feel like it's even it's it's even stronger because it's not it's not a bag, it's not a sweatshirt. You know, it's an it's something that's involved with their life. And when that positive experience gets passed on. Um, I feel like that not only brand recognition, but the the strength of it is even more powerful, um, which goes back to you going to what you said in terms of knowing your audience. Healthcare, in my opinion, is very unique because it's arguably the most intimate interaction that you have with a brand or with another person. And, um, and, and what I mean specifically by that is in surgical cases, you're letting someone cut you open. Right. And, and that's huge in where I work presently in the addiction treatment and mental health space. I mean, we have people that are talking through um, imprisonment, loss of children, childhood trauma and so on and so forth. That's, I mean, deep that you're, you're not getting into that sort of conversation, even in a lot of cases with your best friends. So they're talking to counselors. They're working through uh, a lot of these sort of underlying um, psychological and emotional issues in a way that's just raw and, like I said, intimate. And so the fact that, to your point, Francis, right, it's not like buying a sweater and going in and letting someone either cut you open, um, I'll say physically to repair something or in a lot of ways emotionally to work through underlying trauma or um, or stress or anxiety or any sort of other um, mental health concern. I mean, that that takes something that's very unique and it requires exponential amounts of trust compared to I'm going to buy the sweater and expect that it will last a year or more of my wearing it outside and hiking or whatever you're doing in your sweater. You've touched on this a lot, but I'll just ask, how important is empathy in terms of reaching out to this audience for you, for Brightview? Empathy has to be ubiquitous, I would say, not just in our language meaning the the content that we're doing for marketing, but also in the experience. You have to fear, feel that people care about you and your success and they're empowering you to succeed in a way that's not cheesy or fake or um, people can see through that, right? It has to be authentic. It has to be genuine. And that's so much easier to say, we have to be genuinely empathetic than actually being genuinely empathetic. But it, it's it's absolutely crucial. But once people know that you care about them, they have to also be able to rely on you and to trust you, which harkens back to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago. So it's almost worthless to be empathetic without delivering on um, the perceived promise of your brand. So I think it's absolutely crucial. I mean, especially in, in an intimate interaction like counseling or group therapy, where you're expecting people to 
open up and address some of their concerns and underlying traumas and, and start to heal and process uh, oftentimes things that they haven't processed. Uh, yeah, e- empathy is just absolutely crucial. And uh, again, you know, I, I am not a clinician and I, I don't interface with patients on a clinical scale, but th- it takes a, a very brave person to do therapy from the counseling side but it also takes a lot of courage and a lot of guts to do it from the patient perspective. And so having that empathy is absolutely crucial in making sure that you're able to um, t- sort of coax out those types of um, responses and considerations and reflections from patients. Going back to, you know, you, you going to where patients are, you know, listening to them and, you know, basically saying, I want this message to resonate this way. Does it do that? How do you start that conversation with this particular audience? Because they're already there because they, they like you said, they have the courage to ask for help. They, 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 they're there to, 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 to rid themselves of addiction. How do you start that conversation in the sense that you want to help more people? Can you look at some ads or some messaging and tell me what works? It's really interesting because folks who are educated, who are well-respected in society, who hold... I'll say well-paying jobs, that sort of thing, right? They're used to people asking for their opinion. And so it's almost an inconvenience if you come up to somebody and they're in line at the grocery store or what have you, and you say, oh, do you have a couple minutes? I, I'd really like your opinion, whatever. Um, because they're, they're just used to being bombarded, right? Google wants their opinion for user interface improvement. Their bank wants their opinion for um, process improvement and whatever else, right? They're just bombarded with this stuff. Our patient population is not used to being asked about their opinion. They're used to being told, here's what you should do. Here's what you should think. Here's how you should behave. And so part of it was just me asking them, hey, I'd really value your opinion on this. Do you have a couple of minutes? And I was doing it in our waiting room too. So it it was a little bit of a captive audience, but just asking them for their opinion and having them really engage with me and say, yes, I I would really like that. that. That sounds really cool. There's an opportunity for me to opine on something and tell you what I think, I would love to do that. So it it was, I think, just a really fun experience to hear from them. And then for them to know that I'm I'm taking what they're saying and then using that in a way that will help other people find treatment. Because most folks who are engaged in long-term treatment, that's all they want. They want to help other people get into treatment. I never thought of that kind of comparison in terms of one group always getting their, you know, asked for their opinion versus how you describe them. You know, they're being told more often than not. And then suddenly you come in and ask and they basically say, I want to know what you think. And it's like a breath of fresh air. It's something changing in the room. The tone's different. And suddenly their voice matters, which is probably something they haven't experienced either a lot or at all. I would say that's completely true, Francis. And if I can add just one thing to that, you know, we talked about brand promise. We talked about engaging with your audience and um, and being reliable and being accessible. The worst thing that I think we could have done was to sit down and talk with patients and receive their opinions and then totally ignored them and gone some other direction that we decided to do. That That kills brand trust and that puts them right back where they were in a position of, I, I either am not asking for your opinion or once I get your opinion, I'm writing you off. So I I just want to throw that out there as well. It It's not helpful to engage with your audience and then ignore them. But in the same respect, 
I have to assume that not everyone said the same thing. Of course not. So in many ways, I, I wonder if you did you have to qualify that by saying, you know, we we are listening and we're going to take everything to con- into consideration, but not if you have an idea of how this could look and you don't see that later on, it doesn't mean they weren't listened to. It's just part of the process. You're completely correct. I mean, we've talked about consistency and that's absolutely crucial as well. So I want to be clear. I didn't go in and sit down with patients carte blanche and say, what do you think would be a good slogan? What, what tagline would get you to pick the phone up and call? I went to them with a set of vetted options. Like I said, we sat down with some peer recovery supporters who had similar lived experience to get their valuable input on those um, phrases that we had put together, the marketing language. And so we were asking the same, I was asking the same questions in a consistent method and getting to your point, different answers, right? People have different lived experience, different worldviews, different perceptions, different presuppositions. And so the language that triggers one person might be very engaging to someone else and vice versa. So of course we weren't getting the exact same language uh, or the exact same responses from folks, but I did start to notice trends. So as I was talking to 10, 15 people and three or four of those um, language segments, we'll call them phrases, floated to the top as being the most popular. And there were a couple of them that floated to the bottom or sunk to the bottom, I guess. Um, and, And it was very clear, hey, these three are the top performers. Now, not everyone said that these were the top performers, but most people agreed. And then these two were not resonating with people. And some people, it was their favorite phrase, but most people agreed, hey, this one's probably not going to get people to um, either pick up the phone and call or schedule online. So ex- exactly to your point, Francis, right? Not everyone's going to agree, but you can start to notice trends. You just have to talk to enough people. Last thing on this, and then I'll, I'll see if Jeff has anything to say, because I'm sure I'm assuming he's chomping at the bit. But knowing that, you know, your audience is, is, is resonating with one particular message or a couple of different messages. Did you have the experience where you had that data, you had the audience, the, the audience you were talking to backing it up, but then internally, someone would just say, you know what, that is the one I actually like the least. And I'm surprised they like that one. And I don't know how I feel about it knowing full well that technically they're not the audience for that for that message. So at, at Brightview, I fortunately have not had that experience. We're a, a pretty lean organization with not a lot of uh, organizational hierarchy, but I, I have had experiences in the past. Uh, you know, my, previously I worked in orthopedics and sports medicine. And as you can imagine, most of the ortho physicians are, um, are athletic men. And the the target audience for most orthopedic practices is um, essentially like suburban moms, right? They want to reach people who have expendable income, who have children who are playing sports, who can get injured, who have um, spouses that are quote unquote weekend warriors or what have you that are, um, are, are being injured or what have you. Because in orthopedics, they're not really treating sick people. They're treating injured people most of the time. So uh, we we did have instances where you know I, I would have conversations with with doctors and they would have their golfing buddies or their um, you know running group or the guys that they did um, Warrior Dash and Tough Butter that sort of stuff with oh man I saw your ad on Fox Sports Ohio or oh I saw your ad on ESPN you're like looking good man whatever and and then when we weren't advertising on Fox Sports Ohio and ESPN and and channels that frankly suburban women generally speaking are not watching. 
uh, know your audience, right? We talked about audience segmentation a little bit, but you know, you, it was just funny because then I would get questions about, are we advertising anywhere? You know, and, and it wasn't so much about patient volume or phone call volume. It was more about, Hey, my golfing buddies aren't texting me saying that they saw my advertisement because we're not advertising on channels where they want, like where they're used to watching. We're advertising on channels where our audience is watching. And so it was just funny to see how that played out. Um, but I, I would say, fortunately, at, at Brightview, that's not the case. There were flat enough that uh, we we listen to the patients and we understand what our objectives are. And it's probably not to get our golf buddies to text us and say, hey, I saw your advertisement. It's probably just to get the phone to ring and new patients to come in. <laughs> no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. But that does happen at a lot of businesses. Yeah, no, that's very true. But I, I again, you have the you would have the data to back it up. So I think that's where the power comes in. You just touched on it in terms of your background. And um, now I'm, I'm really curious because I can hear the marketing experience and the expertise. Um, is, is, the, is the love in marketing? Is, is the love in healthcare, in the healthcare industry? Or is it a mixture of both? You know, if I'm being honest, I actually stumbled into the healthcare industry. I, I went to school for marketing, went to the renowned University of Cincinnati, arguably one of the best schools in Southwestern Ohio and studied marketing and absolutely fell in love with it. And a shout out to my mom. But when I was younger, I just really liked the creative aspect of writing. And, you know, I, I essentially had a, the conversation with my mom when I was 15 or 16, whatever, when you're trying to figure out what do you want to major in? What do you want to do with your life about, you know, writing's fun, but it's really challenging to make a solid living writing. <clears throat> she didn't know the content marketing revolution was coming in 15 years or whatever. So I decided to go into marketing and just absolutely fall in love with it. Everything from the ability to flex the creative side of my brain with um, advertising language, with copywriting, with press releases, with uh, media interviews, that sort of thing, to the the really um, analytical technical side of thing with audience segmentation and data analysis and continual improvement, multivariate testing, user interface optimization, and the list goes on, right? So marketing is just so fun. And there's this mentality of constant improvement, of always making experiences better. So I absolutely fell in love with it. Did a lot of work in the uh, the home improvement space and um, property management uh, in, in marketing roles and um, financial analyst roles for a, a short period of time. And then really shifted into healthcare, um, again, kind of inadvertently and started working for an orthopedic and sports medicine practice and really fell in love with healthcare. It's pretty cool when you know, you're able to have a conversation as a marketer with an athlete who thought that they were going to lose their scholarship or thought they were going to have to give up their dream of playing professional baseball or what have you. And they saw an advertisement or they worked with um, an, an outreach manager and they came in and they either had surgery or did physical therapy or what have you. And now they're back on the field or back on the track or back on the court. It was just really gratifying and pretty cool. It was, it was almost like the excitement of marketing without the, and not that marketers are sleazy or anything of that nature, but everybody's probably had an experience where you saw an ad, you either clicked on the ad or you bought a product or what have you, and it just didn't live up to your expectations. And so this was just a really cool vertical healthcare to do marketing, to do advertising in, to bring a level of sophistication that a lot of healthcare providers, I'm sure you see this as well, uh, just don't have. Um, and, and so from the sports medicine transition into 
addiction medicine. And one of the reasons was I, I kind of wanted to round myself out. It's easy. I won't say it's easy. It's simple to reach the um, upper income or upper middle class um, suburbanite, if you will, with with kids. That's not complicated. There's billions of dollars of research, hundreds of thousands of surveys and data points about how to reach that person, what gets them to tick, um, psychographics, geographic segmentation, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, but the Medicaid population, folks who are housing insecure, who um, may or may not have transportation, who might be unemployed, and so on and so forth, reaching those folks, very challenging, very different, very few data points, very few expertise on how exactly to reach them effectively. And so now I'm able to have conversations with patients, not about, I thought I was going to lose my scholarship, thank you for helping me keep it, but not that I did anything, right? They're thanking the physicians who operated on them. Um, now I'm able to have conversations that are, thank you for um, for allowing me to work through my condition. Thank you for believing in me. Thank you for reaching out to me, et cetera, et cetera, supporting me. Um, you saved my life. And again, not to me personally, but to Brightview staff, to our clinicians, to our physicians, et cetera. So those are just completely, um, I would say, life-changing and extremely motivating to just hear folks who are um, just in the depths of despair and, and in a lot of cases, either suicidal or borderline suicidal, and they're coming into treatment and they're able to reclaim their lives. In a lot of cases, get their kids back. In a lot of cases, get um, jobs to get apartments and so on and so forth and rebuild their lives. I mean, that's just in incredible. And it's uh, it's an honor that I get to work in the industry. So to totally answer your question in one sentence, I'm super passionate about marketing, fell into healthcare, and I've been very passionate about marketing since falling into it. Hopefully that provides a little more context. Absolutely. And I, I resonate with that so, so much because you talking about how you, you, talking to patients and talking about their experience and what, you know, a message or an advertisement or whatever it might've been led them, you know, to Brightview. Um, it's a, it's a different type of gratification. You know, it's, it's not something you can see in a, in a Google analytics report or any sort of report. Um, it suddenly breaks through all that and you have reached out and touched the life of another human um, through marketing, <laughs> which, you know, I mean, not to be overly dramatic, but that's that's really cool in the sense that you can help help in, the, in that sort of way with all this knowledge you have. But what you also said about, you know, how in this space there there isn't I mean, you said it reaching out to these people, reaching out to this audience and finding tactics to do that isn't very clear. Um, in many ways, it's a puzzle. And in, in some ways, it's not it's not even traditional. You know, a word of mouth is just as strong as the massive billboard if it comes from a certain, you know, person or, or, or point of view. Um, and so in many ways, it's it's not all laid out, which is, I'll admit, can be frustrating, but it's also a challenge. And I think as marketers, that's something that's really attractive in the sense that you're trying to figure out this puzzle. But when you figure it out, you get that experience with that human. And so the motivation is like tenfold. I, I think you're exactly right. It, well, and part of it too is, I mean, let's be honest, if if all it was, if all marketing was, was simply saying, okay, deliver this message to this audience, you could have a high schooler with no credentials do that, right? You don't need somebody with two or three or maybe even one decade of marketing experience to come in and say, ah, we think that you should hit these two buttons or you could have a computer automated to, to do that. but 
to your point about the the sort of physical touch points, man, that that's where marketing directors are in their keep, isn't it? Is making sure that the brand is empathetic, that it's getting engagement, that folks relate to it, that they not only see the content, but they feel the content. I think that's huge. And it comes back to customer experience. I mean, honestly, I think that's really where the rubber meets the road is you can lie all you want in advertising, but you're not going to get repeat business if you aren't delivering on the promises that you're making. And and I'll just echo back with a quick little anecdote because I think stories probably resonate a little bit more than me just spouting off random facts. But we had a a patient that I had the, the pleasure of talking to at one of our centers and his father passed away, um, I think about 18 months after uh, this gentleman um, became sort of stable in his sobriety. And his father struggled with addiction as well. Um, fortunately, did not pass away from it, but you know, he struggled with addiction. And so when his son was saying, hey, I'm I'm taking uh, this medication that's helping provide neurological stabilization for me, is that really didn't understand what was going on because he had quit cold turkey. So this this gentleman was able to take some literature from uh, Brightview, present it to his dad who read it, and it clicked with his dad all of a sudden. He realized, oh, here's why he's taking this medication for opioid use disorder, uh, and I didn't have to use it for stimulants. And so that rekindled the relationship and helped build the relationship between this father and son, and the son was able to spend about a year and a half with his father before his dad passed away. So getting that sort of um, affirmation from patients about, hey, it, it's not that you just got me in the door, but the materials that your team worked on that you guys put together helped really rebuild the relationship with me and my dad. And fortunately, I was able to spend a year and a half with him before he passed away. That type of conversation is huge. I mean, it's it's something that that a, as a marketer, we we can aspire to have, but it's very hard to actually fabricate that. Yeah. There's no way. And you're right. The story is just that much stronger because of it. And you're not even thinking about, you know, um, a program or a piece of paper or medication. You're suddenly thinking about the, the relationship between a father and a son, which has universal appeal and re- and can resonate strongly. Um, that's an amazing story. And I, I mean, just, just you just hearing it, you know, tells me all I need to know about Brightview suddenly, you know, then it's like, okay, I get it. I may not know the details and I don't understand it, but I suddenly understand the why and why someone, why someone would go there and why, and and how it could help. And I think that's the biggest thing. And it's so interesting because that's not something you could put on a billboard or, you know, any type of advertisement. It's something very much you have to feel um, in terms of an emotional, an emotional way. That's exactly right. Colin, you have a podcast. Uh, you're also, I believe you co-host it, right? Uh, the, the Rethink podcast? That's exactly right. So uh, my co-host, Eric, and I work on uh, Take 5, the Rethink Marketing Podcast. And I have been a marketing department of one. And so we we don't gear everything toward marketing departments of one, certainly, but we really try to, to support those folks. I mean, it's so challenging as a marketing leader or marketing decision maker to know what's going on in SEO while knowing what's going on with local search, while knowing what's going on with search engine marketing, while knowing what's going on with content marketing, while knowing what's going on with public relations, while knowing what's going on. I mean, you get the idea, right? There's just so many different plates that a marketing director has to keep in the air. 
and it's incumbent on them to stay above the fold, if you will, on what's going on with all of those different things. And so for us to be able to bring in some great guests, to have some expertise, to opine and laugh at each other a little bit uh, is just a great time. And hopefully we provide some good value to our audience as well. That's a really interesting angle, though, because it it, it does. Um, there, uh, I mean, you know, there are a lot of um, marketing directors of one and um, having to, you know, not only stay up to date on everything, but then also communicating that into the organization they're at because they are a marketing director of one um, is in itself another challenge. Absolutely. <laughs> Which I'm sure you've heard through. Um, I think you, I saw you have 58 episodes of your podcast. Yes. Yeah. We just, just crested 50 not too long ago, I think last month. So. So what is that in years? How long have you been doing it? We just started about a year ago. I think it'll be a year in June and, you know, kudos to our audience and thank you to some outstanding guests. We've been able to build a pretty decent following and it's just loads of fun. I'm sure that you guys see that where you have guests on, not me, but other guests and you actually learn stuff from them and they're, they're good conversationalists and it's just loads of fun to sit down across the table from somebody that's a little bit like-minded or has um, deep expertise in a certain area and just peel back the onion on, on some of their perspectives. I mean, especially we find that lots of entrepreneurs kind of default into being their own marketers. And so how, how did they learn that element of marketing? How are they providing value to their audience and so on and so forth? It, it's just a lot of really interesting conversations. I agree with you. It's it's a weird it's a weird element of podcasting. I mean, we when we started, it was definitely um, it was definitely more wooden and awkward. Jeff and I always make fun of each uh, fun of uh, our early days when we were trying, you know, to it was just us and doing like top five things or whatever. But the the absolute second we started bringing on guests and having a conversation like this, everything changed. You know, suddenly there was a point, and suddenly. There was um, there was interesting conversation to be had, and um, it freed honestly it freed us up from preparing too much because we were prepping we were prepping way probably way more than we should have been when it was just Jeff and I, and we were still a little awkward with the whole audio and you know how do we how do we podcast and how do you just talk, and it's so interesting to kind of even develop that skill to naturally have a conversation while knowing you're getting recorded, um, and being okay with it. So it's it's been an interesting journey. Um, how many times have you guys lost audio on your or lost a recording? Oh, we've we've had some doozies. We had um, we had Bob Berg, author of The Go Giver, on our podcast, and in the middle of his episode, I kid you not, we we were recording via Zoom. In the middle of his episode, Zoom died, like it it kicked out our audio engineer and it stopped recording. So and, and of course he's a an internationally acclaimed speaker. So we didn't want to look bad for him, but he also has a very, very tight timeline. So we wanted to make sure that we were maximizing the 30 minutes that he carved out of his schedule for us. So yeah, m- middle of the episode, Zoom dies. So we were scrambling, I was recording and my co-host started recording and we we cobbled together a really solid episode. But that, that was probably the the most heart attack inducing uh, faux pas that we've had from podcasting. Uh, so thank you to Bob Berg for being gracious uh, with us in that endeavor. But yeah, there, there are certainly instances where something happens. I, I joke technology is great, except for when it's not. And that certainly happened in in that <laughs> instance. But fortunately, we, we've had um, some pretty well um, 
disposition, if you will, guests that have rolled with some of the punches. And uh, hopefully you guys can say the same. Have you had this experience before? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Presently with Jeff's Wi-Fi? Presently with Jeff's Wi-Fi. There have been times where my internet went out midway through and I had to jump back in. There have been times that um, Jeff, Jeff was, uh, uh, has been in Columbia for a while. So there was some background noises, uh, or traffic or who knows what, um, that would affect the audio. Um, the most epic one was when it was early on when Jeff and I just did an episode of just us. And it was one, it was one of those ones where we finally felt natural. We felt great. You know, we had, we had a great conversation. There was a lot of Top Gun references. There was a lot of crapping thrown at each other, making each other laugh. And then at the end of it, um, he chats me and it said, it's gone. It's all gone. Oh, and no. I was like, what are you talking about? We just talked for 40 minutes. It's all gone. And he goes, yeah, it's all gone. So I said, we got to get back because however you're feeling, I want we should talk about this right now because it's going to be hilarious. And and that's what we did. So that ep- it's our episode five of season one where we're talking about this lost footage. And um, Jeff is comparing it to that scene in Top Gun where Goose dies and Maverick is looking at himself in the mirror. And it's like, that's how it feels right now. And I always point to that one as our as my favorite because I, I believe that's the seed that suddenly became this, that we suddenly realized we could be natural and we could just talk about stuff. And it was easier that way when we was more in a weird way when we brought some emotion back into it. Um it, it made it it made it flow a little easier. And then from then we brought guests on and and so on. But actually one one last thing with podcasting, Colin. I mean, how I, I'm with you. I, I love them. I, I, they're fun. I love the conversations. I, I love promoting them on LinkedIn. Um, but for you, I'm wondering how has it helped expand your network? Has it actually helped um, in terms of, you know, not to use a buzzword, but be a thought leader in your space? Have you found it to be doing that as well? Or at this point, is it just I'm just I love talking to people and I'm going to keep doing it? All of those things. I love talking to people, especially folks who um, not to be arrogant, but I love talking to people who know more than me. I know a lot about marketing. I've been doing it for a a decade and I read prolifically about it. um, And and I I just love marketing. I mean, I'm very passionate about it. But to talk to folks who know more about public relations than I do, or more about SEO or all the different sort of sub verticals within marketing, I just love engaging with them and hearing from their expertise and their stories and their careers and their experiences and so on. So that's absolutely part of it. Another element of it is I, like I said, love consuming content related to marketing. I love staying on top of my craft. And so hearing from those folks, prepping for those interviews, reading their books, listening to their podcast, reading their blogs and so on makes it so that way I know what's going on in marketing. I'm able to have intelligent conversations with them. I'm able to bring that expertise to Brightview and I'm able to share it with my team in a lot of instances. And so that's a huge element of it as well. And then it, it just makes me think, which I think is really cool. You know, Francis, you talked about being a better conversationalist and a better interviewer after podcasting. I think that's definitely true. But there are also little nuggets that you have when you talk to diverse people, folks I wouldn't otherwise speak with, uh, or probably even have the opportunity to interact with or hear from. Uh, it's just really neat because you get to hear unique things from them that make you stop and think, that's really interesting. What if I started committing news instead of trying to be found by the news? Huh, that's really fascinating. What if I started providing value first before I tried to build relationship? I mean, there are so many different nuances that make you stop and just pause and consider what somebody said. 
and I think that's probably the biggest part of it. But I mean, there's there's so much to be learned about what we do, and it's just really fun to toss around ideas with you know gentlemen such as yourself, and also some of the guests that we've been able to have on. Well, I was going to say, in the vein of, of talking to people who know more than you, I, I thank you for slumming it with us um, for this No, episode. not at all. I've, I've absolutely <laughs> enjoyed myself, and I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, man. Jeff, I love this one, man. This one was great. So um, thank you, Colin, uh, for joining us. Better. <laughs> and uh, Jeff, hopefully your audio improves next time around. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I've really enjoyed myself. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.